seven-year-old flat-chested ex-prize fighter who had fought Cleveland Williams and Eddie Machen. It was night and raining hard on the colonnade and tin roof of the building. I sat at the far end of the bar, away from the door, with a dimitas of coffee and a saucer and tiny spoon in front of me. Through the front window, I could see Cleek Purcell parked in his lavender Cadillac convertible, a fedora shadowing his face in the glow of the streetlight. A man came in and removed his raincoat and sat down on the other end of the bar. He was young, built like a weightlifter whose physique was earned rather than created with steroids. He wore his brown hair shaved on the sides with curls hanging down the back of his neck. His eyebrows were half-moons, his face impish, cartoon-like, as though it were drawn with a charcoal pencil. Goldie poured him a shot and a draft chaser, then set the whiskey bottle back on the counter against the mall and pretended to read the newspaper. The man finished his drink and walked the length of the bar to the men's room and back. His eyes looked straight ahead and showed no interest in me as he passed. That's the guy, Goldie said, leaning close to me. You sure? No mistake, I said. He comes in three nights a week for a shot and beer, sometimes catfish po' boy. I heard him talking about it on the payphone back there. Maybe he's not the guy who hurt your friend, but how many guys in New Orleans are going to be talking about breaking the spokes on a Catholic priest? I heard the men's room door open again, and footsteps walked past me to the opposite end of the bar. Goldie's eyes became veiled, impossible to read. The top of his head looked like an alabaster bowling ball with blue lines in it. I'm sorry about your loss. He was last year, he said. I nodded. He was lupus, he said. Yeah, that's right, I replied. You doing all right? Sure, I said, avoiding his eyes. Don't get in no trouble, like we used to do in the old days. Not a chance, I said. Hey, my poor boy ready? The man at the end of the bar asked. The man made a call on the payphone, then ate his sandwich and bounced pool balls off the rails on the pool table. The mirror behind the bar was oxidized and oily green and yellow, like the color of lubricant floating in water, and between the liquor bottles lined along the mirror I could see the man looking at the back of my head. I turned on the bar stool and grinned at him. He waited for me to speak. But I didn't. I know you, he said. Maybe. I used to live in New Orleans. I don't anymore, I said. He spun the cue ball down the rail into the pocket. His eyes lowered. So you want to shoot some nine ball, he said. I'd be poor competition. He didn't raise his eyes or look at me again. 
He finished his beer and sandwich at the bar, then put on his coat and stood at the screen door, looking at the mists blowing under the colonnade and at the cars passing in the neon-streaked wetness in front of Goldie's bar. Cleet Purcell fired up his Cadillac and rattled down the street, turning at the end of the block. The man with the impish face and curls that hung on the back of his neck stepped outside and breathed the air like a man out for a walk, then got into a Honda and drove up magazine toward the Garden District. A moment later, Cleet Purcell pulled around the block and picked me up. Can you catch him? I asked. I don't have to. That's Gunnar Ardoin. He lives in a dump off Chapatulas, he said. Gunner? He's a button man? No. He's been in two or three of Fat Sammy Figarelli's porn films. He mules crystal in the projects, too. Would he bust up a priest? I asked. Cleet looked massive behind the steering wheel his upper arms like big cured hams inside his tropical shirt. His hair was sandy, cut short like a little boy's. A diagonal scar ran through his left eyebrow. Gunner, he said. It doesn't sound like him. But a guy who performs oral sex for a hometown audience? Who knows? We caught up with the Honda on Napoleon Avenue, then followed it through a dilapidated neighborhood of narrow streets and shotgun houses to Chapatulas. The driver turned on a side street and parked under a live oak in front of a darkened cottage. He walked up a shell driveway and entered the back door with a key and turned on a light inside. Cleet circled the block, then parked four houses up the street from Gunnar Ardoin's place and cut the engine. He studied my face. You look a little wired, he said. Not me, I said. The rain on the windshield made rippling shadows on his face and arms. I made my peace with NOPD, he said. Really? Most of the guys who did us dirt are gone. I let it be known I'm not in the OK Corral business anymore. Makes life a lot easier, he said. Through the overhang of the trees, I could see the Mississippi levee at the foot of the street and fog billowing up from the other side. Boat lights were shining inside the fog so that the fog looked like electrified steam rising off the water. Are you coming? I asked. He pulled an unlit cigarette from his mouth and threw it out the window. Why not, he said. We walked up Gunnar Ardoin's driveway, past the garbage can overflowing with shrimp husks. Banana trees grew against the side of the house, and the leaves were slick and green and denting in the rainwater that slid off the roof. I jerked the back screen off the latch and went into Gunnar Ardoin's kitchen. You beat up Catholic priests, do you? I said, What? He said, turning from the sink with a metal coffee pot in his hand. He wore drawstring, tin-colored workout pants and a ribbed undershirt. His skin was white, clean of jailhouse art, 
his underarm shaved. A weight set rested on the floor behind him. Lose the innocent monkey face gunner. You used a steel pipe on a priest named Jimmy Dolan, Cleet said. Gunner set the coffee pot down on the counter. He studied both of us briefly, then lowered his eyes and folded his arms on his chest, his back resting against the sink. His nipples looked like small brown dimes through the fabric of his undershirt. Do what you have to do, he said. Better rethink that statement, Cleet said. But Gunner only stared at the floor, his elbows cupped in his palms. Cleet looked at me and raised his eyebrows. My name's Dave Robichaux. I'm a homicide detective with the Iberia Parish Sheriff's Department, I said, opening my badge holder. But my visit here is personal. I didn't beat up a priest. You think I did, then I'm probably in the shitter. I can't change that. He began picking at the calluses on his palm. You get that at a 12-step session up in Angola, Cleet said. Gunnar Ardoin looked at nothing and suppressed a yawn. You raised Catholic, I said. He nodded without lifting his eyes. You're not bothered by somebody hospitalizing a priest, breaking his bones, a decent man who never harmed anyone, I said. I don't know him. You say he's a good guy? Maybe he is. There's a lot of priests out there, all good guys, right? He said. Then, like all career recidivists and full-time smartasses, he couldn't resist the temptation to show his contempt for the world of normal people. He turned his face away from me, but I saw one eye glimmer with mirth, a grin tugged slightly at the corner of his mouth. Maybe they kept the altar boys away from him, he said. I stepped closer to him, my right hand bawling. But Cleet pushed me aside. He picked up the metal coffee pot from the counter and smashed it almost flat against the side of Gunnar Ardoin's head, then threw him in a chair. Gunnar folded his arms across his chest, a torn grin on his mouth, blood trickling from his scalp. Have at it, fellas. I made both y'all back on Napoleon. I dialed 911 since I came in. My lawyer loves guys like you, he said. Through the front window, I saw the emergency flasher on an NOPD cruiser pull to the curb under the live oak tree that grew in Gunnar Ardoin's front yard. A lone black female officer slipped her baton into the ring on her belt and walked uncertainly toward the gallery, her radio squawking incoherently in the rain. I slept that night on Cleet's couch in his small apartment above his P.I. office on St. Anne. The sky was clear and pink at sunrise, the streets in the quarter puddled with water, the bougainvillea on Cleet's balcony as bright as drops of blood. I shaved and dressed while Cleet was still asleep and walked past St. Louis Cathedral and through Jackson Square to the Café du Monde. 
where I met Father Jimmy Dolan at a table under the pavilion. Although we'd been friends and had bass fished together for two decades, he remained in many ways a mysterious man, at least to me. Some said he was a closet drunk who'd done time in a juvenile reformatory. Others said he was gay and well-known among the homosexual community in New Orleans, although women were obviously drawn to him. He had crew-cut blonde good looks and the wide shoulders and tall, trim physique of the wide-end receiver he'd been at Winchester, Kentucky High School. He didn't talk politics, but he got into trouble regularly with authority on almost all levels, including six months in a federal prison for trespassing on the School of the Americas property at Fort Benning, Georgia. It had been three months since he'd been waylaid in an alley behind his church rectory and methodically beaten from his neck to the soles of his feet by someone wielding a pipe with an iron bonnet screwed down on the business end. Cleet Purcell and I rousted a guy named Gunner Ardwan last night. I think maybe he's the guy who attacked you, I said. Father Jimmy had just bitten into a beignet, and his mouth was smeared with powdered sugar. He wore a tiny sapphire in his left earlobe. His eyes were a deep green, thoughtful, his skin tan. He shook his head. That's Phil, Ardwan. Wrong guy, he said. He said he didn't know you. I coached his high school basketball team. Why would he lie? With Phil, it's a way of life. An NOPD cruiser pulled to the curb out on Decatur, and a black female officer got out and fixed her cap on her head. She looked like she was constructed of twigs, her sky-blue shirt too large on her frame, her pursed lips layered with red lipstick. Last night, Cleet had said she reminded him of a black swizzle stick with a cherry stuck on the end. She threaded her way through the tables until she was abreast of ours. The brass name tag on her shirt said C. Arsenault. I thought I should give you a heads up, she said. How's that? I asked. She looked off abstractly at the traffic on the street.